Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, and, of course, the up-and-coming springtime release of Simple Homebrew. Yeah, man. Sometime in the spring. We don't know when yet, but uh, we'll let you know. Yeah, you guys are going to get sick and tired of us talking about it. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, well, we'll get to your feedback. We're going to go to the pub and cover the beer news. We're going to talk about brewing without, well, without lifting. All before we head down to Long Beach and talk with the fine folks at Liberation Brewing Company about how you go from being a touring rock musician to a brewer. Wow, man. Uh, I don't know which one of those would be worse. <laughs> all right, but before we get into all of that, please sit back for a second and listen to these messages from the people who make this show possible. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, organizers of Learn to Homebrew Day, a day dedicated to sharing the joys of homebrewing with friends and family. This November 3rd, we invite you to attend a Learn to Homebrew Day event near you or host your own celebration. Visit the AHA website at homebrewersassociation.org to view a map of Learn to Homebrew Day events, as well as resources for promoting your own Learn to Homebrew Day gathering. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're back and we're ready to go. And we're going to start off with a few announcements. And the first one is that there's a new episode of The Brew Files Out, episode 46, called The Little Beer That Could. We talked to Eric Pierce, who's one of our Igors. And even more important than that, he just won the Sam Adams Long Shot Beer Competition with a grisette that he made uh, after getting inspired by listening to another Brew Files episode. Well, and of course, I think the real lesson out of this episode is Beer wants to become beer, and sometimes you'll get an award-winning beer, no matter what you do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, Eric has a great story about what he went through trying to brew that beer, and it turned out a winner. Yeah, just remember, never give up, never surrender. That's Always right. Always drink a beer. That's right. And, of course, don't forget, this is Australia Month. That's right, we're going to Australia. We'll be in Melbourne for the biannual Australian National Homebrewers Conference, uh, October 25th to October 27th. Tickets are available at www.anhc.com.au. You can come hear us. We'll be doing a live podcast. We'll both be giving a couple of talks. And it's not just going to be us. It's going to be Jay Goodwin from the Rare Barrel will be there. 
Chris White from White Labs, Peter Simons, and a whole bunch of others. Now, post-conference, we'll be doing, well, we're going to be taking a little bit of a road trip, and we're going to be making an appearance and a talk in Sydney at Batch Brewing Company on Tuesday, October the 30th at 8 p.m. Tickets are available online. Just go to experimentalbrew.com slash Sydney to go pick up your tickets and come see us at Batch Brewing in Sydney. Yeah, man, I'm getting really excited about this. I know. Uh, just looking forward to being upside down for a while. <laughs> and uh, like Drew said, we're going to be taking a road trip from Melbourne to Sydney. We're going to be uh, stopping overnight in uh, Marambula. I probably screwed that up, but uh, I think you may know what I mean. And Huskisson Bay, if you live near either one of them, get in touch with us and we'll see if we can get together for a beer. Yay, beer. All right. The next thing that we got coming up is in March, and there's actually a couple things. I'm heading to Asheville, North Carolina for a Brew Your Own Boot Camp, March 22nd and 23rd. Besides all the other people doing seminars and teaching there, Marshall Schott and I will be doing a uh, seminar on homebrew experimentation, which could be pretty darn interesting, uh, depending on what Marshall and I end up deciding to do. Uh, please come and see us, and when you register for it, Put experimental brewing in the comments, and uh, we'll get a little bit of money to help us continue the podcast. And just think, you could spend all day in a room with Marshall and Denny. Yeah, right. And uh, one of those won't drive you crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> while I'm in Asheville, Drew is heading to Dallas for the Blue Bonnet Brew-Off. Yeah, one of the largest homebrew competitions in the world. I think it's the second largest after only the you know, AHA's National Homebrew Com Competition. So, yeah, it's going to be a big time. There's going to be talks. There's going to be parties. It's going to be a good time. So if you're going to be in the Dallas area on that same weekend, March 22nd to 23rd, come help out at the Blue Bronnet. Come buy me a beer. I'll buy you a beer. We'll hang out. We'll have fun. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Our charitable cause right now is an organization called Nowzad. It's in Afghanistan. It was uh, started to help our servicemen there with the dogs that they found to take care of them and bring them home. It's expanded beyond that and still doing that, but it's also helping the Afghan people with some of their animals. It is a great, great cause. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, throw us a buck or two, and we'll pass it along to them. Yeah, go dogs. Yeah. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. It's time for Feedback. And uh, <laughs> the water episode just keeps on giving because we keep getting feedback and questions from it. So... Uh, episode 45 of the Brew Files, Water, Water Everywhere, we got a comment from uh, listener Rich who says, As a brewing water user in a hard water region, I am planning my first Czech dark pilsner and planning on dilution of my hard water with distilled. My question is this, do I need to dilute both my mash water and my sparge water? In the brewing water adjustment summary, there is only dilution of the mash water. If I do dilute my sparge water, then the sparge water acidification cal calculations go out the window. So... I went and I talked to Martin about this because you don't want my answer because my answer is useless. <laughs> so Martin's answer was dilution for sparging water isn't incorporated in the free version of brewing water, but is included in the supporters version. Not all water sources need dilution for use of sparging water. The main goal of the sparge acidification sheet is to guide the acid dosing to reduce alkalinity to low and acceptable levels. 
If users of the free version intend to use dilution for their sparging water, then they will need to manually alter their water supply profile to reflect that dilution. So in other words, go through Martin a couple of bucks, yeah, get that functionality. Uh, so for a few bucks, uh, you can not only support Martin and what he's doing, but you can save yourself some hassle, too. And I'm always uh, up for spending money to avoid hassle. Yeah, uh, money equals time equals labor equals... Yeah, I got a little bit of money to spend on that because it's not very expensive. <laughs> That's right. All right. And then, of course, we have one other piece of feedback. And, Denny, this one, uh, this one's near and dear for you. Yeah, I uh, I spend a lot of time uh, hanging out on the Homebrewing UK forum. Uh, there's a couple of UK homebrewing groups on Facebook, including the BrewTube official group. And a post came up this week about uh, how one of the members of the group, Steve Ogden, has had a terrible house fire. I believe his son ended up in the hospital afterwards, although it looks like he's going to be okay. But, uh, well, I'll just read this. I thought you guys would be interested in a great bit of community spirit by the guys and gals on BrewTube Official, the Facebook page. A member, Steve Ogden, had a really bad house fire and his family lost everything. So Jamie Walton, a member of the group, started a whip-round collection for him and his family and so far has raised 1,970 pounds, which is about 2,500 bucks U.S., for him and his family via a Just Giving page. I think it's amazing that we can rally around a fellow homebrewer in their darkest hour when many of us have never met him but feel like we know him so well. And, you know, people right there is uh, an example of what makes the homebrew community so great, the the camaraderie, the feeling of sharing, of helping out. So we're going to put a link to the Fund for Steve Ogden on our website, and uh, hopefully you can help too, and I think that we'll probably uh, throw him some money too. Indeed. You remember, we're a community, and it's good to support your community, so we'll make sure to have the link up on in the show notes so you can go th throw him a buck or two. Okay, man. I think it's about time for a beer now, don't you? One or two. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to have two. So uh, stick around. Our sponsors are going to let you know what they got going, and we'll be back in just a minute. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.
All right, we have wandered down here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever you live. And we're going to have a couple beers. Uh, I'm going to have a couple beers. Drew may just have one. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? Uh, well, I'm just going to have one in a big bottle. Uh, you know, <laughs> now that it's you know fall here, kind of in Los Angeles. You know, right now it's a it's a brisk and chilly 74 degrees outside. Oh man! <laughs> hey, Southern California. Yeah. Uh, but now that it's fall, you know, time to have some more fall thoughts on beer. And so one of my favorites is actually from, oddly enough, Brasserie Dupont, and it's the Monette. And Monette comes in two variations, blonde and brune. And since it's fall time, I'm having the brune because it's a little bit chewier, but also, you know, really got that clean, delicious, spicy thing that uh, Dupont carries and goes right to that Dupont level of dryness. So it's perfect for a Southern California fall. And for you, Denny? Uh, I've had the blonde one, but I've never had the brune, so I'm looking for that. But today, I am drinking Oktoberfests. And uh, I say fests, plural, because I'm trying two very, very different ones. The first one is from Ninkasi, right here in Eugene, Oregon. But they're a big enough brewery that a lot of you probably have run across them before. They do theirs in kind of the fest beer style. It's uh, lighter colored, it's toastier, but then they also have to put their own Ninkasi slash Pacific Northwest spin on it. So they use hops like uh, Mount Hood, Crystal, stuff like that, Pacific Northwest hops. And they hop this 5.5% beer to 40 IBUs. And I have to admit, it's a delicious beer, but it doesn't taste much like any Oktoberfest I've ever had. Now... Just as a bit of comparison, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is about 5.8%, and it's bittered to 38 IBUs. So, you know, you've, this beer is actually uh, a little bit more bitter than a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. But like I said, it's a delicious beer. It's just a different take on an Oktoberfest. The other one that I'm trying is the collaboration that Sierra Nevada did with Weinstefen, the world's oldest brewery. And this one is very, very much a, a traditional Mertzen-style Oktoberfest. Uh, it's rich, it's malty, it's got a touch of sweetness to it. This is a 6% beer with only 20 IBUs, so you can see it's very, very different than Ninkasi. Both of them delicious beers, but both of them very different takes on uh, an Oktoberfest. Yeah, go uh, go figure that there would be such a, I don't know, amped up Oktoberfest coming out of Ninkasi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They're usually so restrained, huh? Yeah, particularly like, say, you know, their take on an alt beer, you know, Slayer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, Imperial Double Alt. Yep, yeah. yep. Ninkasi always does it big. Yeah, Ninkasi is not exactly what I would call a huge fan of the idea of subtlety, and that's perfectly fine. That's right. So now let's get from the beer into the beer news. Yeah, a couple of stories running around out there because, of course, the beer world is always turning. And I think the big one to me from the past couple of weeks has been that Lagunitas, the former craft brewery now owned by Heineken, uh, has announced that they're laying off 12% of their staff, which means over 100 people, a lot of them in the Petaluma area. They also announced that they are no longer going to open up the third brewery they were going to open up after Chicago. They were going to open up one actually not too far away from me in the town of Azusa. So that one has apparently been put on hold. And, of course, the blame is all going towards the idea that craft beer sales, at least for the majors, are slowing down. 
you know, because now everybody's going, hey, you know, I've got my little local brewery. I'm going to go get a beer from them. And so Lagunitas is, you know, pretty much put it right there at the hands of that. And what's also interesting at the same time is I guess they have excess capacity because the Heineken also announced that they're going to start brewing Newcastle Brown at the Lagunitas plants. You know, they used to brew it in Canada and Mexico for the U.S. so they could have that nice little imported label on there because imported was important. And it didn't mean it was imported from Newcastle. It just meant it was imported over the border. And, you know, so now that <laughs> now they've decided they don't have to do that and they're going to brew it in Chicago and Petaluma. Um, now, part of the reason why I think this is interesting is for years, uh, Tony McGee was, you know, yeah, he was sort of the big outspoken, you know, in-your-face guy about, you know, uh, supporting craft beer and and being independent and everything, and then he sold the brewery to Heineken. And some of his uh, tweets, you know, now that he's the director of uh, global craft operations for Heineken, haven't aged very well. That's the problem with tweets; they don't age very well sometimes. Because uh, he had one from 2013 where he said, "Selling one's brewery is selling all of one's best friends' careers, their hearts, the portion of the lives they've spent working for you." And now it's ended up in layoffs. Oops. Yep. <laughs> so there you go, uh, logging is doing that. And then the other thing, of course, is talking about other sort of people being grumpy about the craft beer world. New Jersey kind of had this situation going on where they flip-flopped on a couple of special rules that they put into place. So long story short, basically New Jersey's ABC, uh, the legislation had passed a few years back to allow New Jersey to have tap rooms. And, of course, the picture was, or the presumed picture, was that, you know, the tap rooms would give you a tour and then offer you a chance to, you know, take a taste. Well, we know how brewery tap rooms work nowadays. You know, they've become kind of mini bars. And so the New Jersey ABC issued rules clarifying what could and could not be done in a brewery. And uh, it went from, you know, saying, okay, you can do special events to now you're limited to 25 special events per year. And by the way, special event means, you know, yoga at the brewery, trivia at the brewery, you know, uh, paint night at the brewery, you know, whatever, take, take your pick. Nowadays, most breweries are having like two or three or four events per week. So that severely cripples them. No TVs allowed, no live music allowed, no uh, sports allowed. No um, fun allowed. Yeah, no fun No uh, food trucks or restaurant menus available. You know, Wait, but... You know, I mean, and, and this makes absolutely no sense until you look at uh, where the opposition is coming from. Yeah, so... A lot of people's knee-jerk reaction to this was, hey, you know, that's big beer. You know, big beer is doing this because they're afraid of small craft beers. And uh, uh, and Dave Ribble, the, the director of the New Jersey ABC, is in the hands of big beer. Uh, no proof of that, just people complaining. But the real thing is actually, I'm going to guess this is mostly from downstream retail, you know, a.k.a. restaurants and bars. Because in New Jersey, if you want to get a liquor license, you know, sometimes you're paying a million dollars for that liquor license. And the brewery license for a taproom is like 1500 And so restaurateurs and bar owners are looking at this going, hey, you know, these guys have effectively opened up a small brew pub slash sports bar, and they're competing with me in an unfair basis. And so those guys are putting a lot of pressure on the New Jersey ABC to then amend these rules. You know, and that, that argument... Uh holds a certain amount of weight, you know, uh, in a way they are, and in a way the playing field isn't level, but <laughs> there's got to be a better way to deal with it than this. Yeah, well, and of course there was a subsequent uproar because, you know, craft beer aficionados are not um, meek. 
and quiet fellows. Because <laughs> they're always drunk. Yeah. Um, and so New Jersey has announced that they're suspending the new rules to allow for further commentary and for further analysis. So for now, game's still on in New Jersey, but beware, your favorite breweries may run into problems real soon. I hope I hope they figure out a way to uh, make this work for everybody. I agree. All right, Denny, you want you want to talk about uh, uh, cherries? Yeah, man, I would love to. Uh, it looks like the classic Charbique cherry is making a comeback. This is the cherry that's traditionally used for making those delicious Belgian Creek beers, and uh, they have started replanting and bringing it back and. Uh, Looks like uh, we're going to be getting back to the traditional tart cherries that were used for those beers. Yeah, the Sharpie cherry, I mean, it's definitely a different experience. Uh, Dre Fontaine uh, in Oud-Bercel, they have a uh, a Schwarbeek, uh cherry creek that they do. It's way expensive, but then again, it's from Dre Fontaine. Everything is way expensive from Dre Fontaine, and it's also way delicious. And the difference in the character, the difference in the flavor delivery, the difference in the complexity between the Charbique and the other Cherry Creeks that are out there is really noticeable. So I'm super stoked, super excited that this is happening because, yay, better yeah, uh, better they, Creek. They've got, yeah, they've got a hundred of these cherry, new cherry trees going right now, 500 more to be planted this fall, and they're shooting for 3,000 by 2022 which uh, should give them 10 metric tons annually for uh, for creek production. Yeah. So I, I think we can be looking forward to some really, really great beers coming from this. Yeah, uh, I'm super, super stoked. And then finally, uh, we go from you know, the return of the cherries to some ecological news. And this one comes out of Carlsberg, you know, who's long been sort of a front runner in sort of innovation. After all, they were the ones who did yeast isolation, you know, <laughs> Carlsberg Labs. And they have announced that they are moving away from plastic can holders. So, you know, take your six-pack rings and toss them in the trash because it turns out that those are still an ecological disaster waiting to happen, even if you recycle them because reasons. And they've decided, actually, that they are going to move to a little gumdrop of glue between the cans. And those will actually hold the cans together, and then there will be a little plastic holder for, like, a handle. Right, but it drastically reduces the amount of plastic that they use. They did a lot of experimentation on this, but basically they made a, a little glue that is perfectly sticky, comes apart uh, you know, easily, but not so easily. And then once you actually take it apart, it's no longer adhesive, and you can just ball it up and throw it away. And I think they said... This is a really good thing uh, for me around here, because... Uh, Due to people screwing up plastics recycling and putting dirty plastic in the uh, in the recycling, the market here for recycled plastic has dried up, and you can't recycle plastic anymore. So this is great because not only will uh, it cut down on the manufacture of them, but uh, you won't have to worry about where you're going to recycle them or throw them away afterwards. Yep, and I love the fact that they said that it took them uh, forty thousand iterations of glue to hit upon the right formula. So I love it. Man, that's a sticky problem. <laughs> uh, come on, you deserve it. You know it. No, nobody deserves that. Let's get out of here. I need, I need to read, read something after that. Okay, I'm going to drink both of these beers, and then we're going to head over to the library and uh, talk about an interesting article from Beer and Wine Journal, and we'll be right back. 
Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back. Just remember, you just heard from our fine sponsors, and those people would love to hear from you. So if you interact with our sponsors, please tell them that you heard about them on Experimental Brewing. That way they know exactly you know, who to keep supporting, and we appreciate it, and we love you, just like our sponsors do. <laughs> That's right. So we are sitting here in the library, surrounded by books, tomes, magazines, and electronic bits whirring through the air. And in fact, today, one of the things that we're going to talk about is some of those electronic bits whirring around from our friend Chris Colby. Uh, over at beerandwinejournal.com. So, uh, Denny, why don't you get us into some jiu-jitsu here? Okay. Uh, Chris has written a, a series of articles called Contest Karate to uh, help you win more medals in homebrewing contests. And uh, lest you think uh, Chris knows nothing about winning medals, that is not the case. Besides uh, running Beer and Wine Journal, he also has a couple great homebrewing books out. And uh, he's written these articles based on what he's learned in his own experience and from talking to other people in his club, the Austin Zealots, because they have a bunch of great brewers and medal winners there. So these are some of the things that he says about how to brew award-winning beer. And the first thing is kind of like the the bad news part. Because let's face it, if you brew crummy beer, if you don't know how to brew good beer – then that's where you got to start. You got to start by knowing that you can make good beer because this article is about fine tuning the beer that you make to be more of a, uh, of a winner when you enter it in a contest. So, uh, some of the tips that he has here, and this article is in two parts so far with more coming based on, and it's all based on the art of war. So, uh, <laughs> I guess that's one way to think of competition. Uh, the first tip is win the battle before you enter it. Don't fight an uphill battle. And, you know, he says, first and foremost, give the judges what they want. If you're going to submit an American Amber Ale, don't submit your unique off-the-wall reinterpretation of the style. And this is so true. So often in forums, you'll see questions from people, and it might be, well, I brewed an amber ale, but I put strawberries in it, and I hopped it to 300 IBUs, and I, I made it like a, a black amber strawberry 300 IBU ale. What category would it go in? Uh, and you probably have to say, I wouldn't put that into competition at all, because no matter how good a beer it is, it's not going to do well in a competition. Remember, when you brew for a competition, you brew for the competition, and you give the judges what they expect. 
But at the same time, he makes the point that you have to make your beers stand out a little bit. Uh, he says, for instance, in a flight of hoppy beers, the hoppiest will stand out. In a flight of strong beers, the strongest will stand out. Uh, just like that. And you take into account the fact that there may be palate fatigue from the judges, that uh, by the time they go through a flight of 70 IBU beers, a 60 IBU beer isn't going to taste bitter at all. And he also covers the other side of that approach. If your beer is one of the first few judged and you've done something to make it stand out, the judges may determine that it's not the style. But you can influence when in the flight your beer is judged. They, they number the beers as they arrive, and they're oftentimes judged in numerical order. Not always, though, but sometimes. But uh, he says that one trick you can try is to send your entries in so they arrive right before the entry deadline. But, you know, no guarantee, but it's worth a shot. So I'm looking forward to uh, seeing where the rest of this series of articles go and uh, other tips that he might have. Yeah, and for listeners who are looking for additional tips that, you know, really are talking about, you know, so sort of, you know, how to strategize thinking about how your beer is going to be perceived in the competition, really recommend that you go back and you listen to the Brew Files episode with Nick Corona, where he talks about a lot of the same things that he's doing, you know, to sort of plan ahead for, you know, what the judges are going to perceive and how they're going to receive the beer. So right. do that. And if you want even more of Chris's great info, we want to let you know about his two books. He's got the Homebrew Recipe Bible and Methods of Modern Homebrewing. So uh, they're both great books. I got copies of them, and uh, you would not go wrong by picking them up to put on your bookshelf right alongside Experimental Homebrewing and Homebrew All-Stars. Absolutely. All right, time to go brew. Yeah, we're going to head over to the brewery. We're going to talk about making yeast starters, and uh, we're going to be talking to our friend Brant Weaver about how you have to maybe change your brewing as you get older and have to deal with what happens there. So please stick around, and we're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. I started brewing uh, 20 plus years ago. I was young and able, and I had a job that uh, enabled me to do heavy lifting and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I've discovered through the years that not only has my drinking tolerance gone down, but so has my physical ability when it comes to brewing. Uh, I'm actually due for a hip replacement here in the middle of November, and my good friend and neighbor, Brant Weaver, just had one. 
So we called him up and had a little conversation about what the two of us are going to have to change in our brewing and take into consideration as uh, as we age and become less able to lift heavy things. So sit back and check this out. We've got our good friend Brant Weaver on the phone with us today. How you doing, Brant? I'm doing really well, Denny. Considering uh, the condition that you're in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll preface this a bit by saying that uh, Brant had hip surgery about a week ago, a hip replacement, and I'm going to be going through the same thing in about a month and a half. So we've both been thinking about how to uh, maybe uh, adjust our breweries to deal with our new lifestyles. So, uh, Brant, you already have a fairly no-lift brewery, right? Pretty much. It's a tier-and-a-half um, frame brewery with a pump. So, uh, you know, I just fill it up and, um, you know, pump the liquids where I need to go. And the only real lifting is uh, moving the maybe the sanitized fermenter around or um, getting rid of the mash tun. I mash in a, uh, on a kettle. Um, and bar- batch barge, so the uh, I don't have a way of moving the grain easily, um, you know, without any effort at all. But I usually use a wheelbarrow. Right, and I guess I should mention the reason this is uh, important to us is because once you have a hip replacement, you're not allowed to lift anything over fifty pounds for the rest of your life because it could break the hip, and we don't want to do that. No, and I'm glad that they uh, made it uh, fifty because that's the weight of a malt bag. <laughs> yeah, I'll be getting somebody else to to do that for me. Well, actually, you know, one of the things that I've decided uh, I'm going to be doing, which is so obvious that I'm surprised I even thought of it, was dividing things up. Uh, for instance, you know, if I have to carry a bag of malt, I'll probably divide it in two. Uh, a full keg weighs about 53 pounds or so. Or no, wait, it was 59 pounds, I guess, counting the weight of the keg. So I'm going to be like putting a five-gallon batch of beer into two different kegs. Yes, and also I have a, um, I have one of the smaller, uh, was it two-and-a-half or three-gallon kegs? Right. And uh, I can easily make a you know, three-and-a-half um, in the five-gallon keg and split the rest of it into the smaller one, too. Right, right. Well, you know, you've got, you've got a tiered brewing system already. Uh, I'm kind of like... Not not set up like that. I'm uh, going to be using my grandfather to heat mash water, pump that up to my cooler with the pump in the grandfather, do the same thing with sparge water, and then uh, gravity feed into the kettle, use my pump to pump over to a keg, a 10-gallon keg that I'm fermenting in, and uh, that way, once the beer is done fermenting, I can use CO2 to transfer it to uh, to other kegs. Yeah, and I think that one of the challenges that I have is that um, I, since I have a propane system, I, it's hard for me to brew inside of my shop, which is where you know downstairs. I know you can you've got a garage that can handle the you know the ventilation just fine, um, but I was thinking that uh, you know they make these mover dollies. I've got a couple of them, mm-hmm. and if I set the uh, com- if I set the fermenter on that then all I would be doing is having to push it over to where I needed it to be. Right. So, and it's all on a single level. So once I, once I finish brewing, you know, I can put the fermenter on the, um, 
on the that little mover's dolly and then pump the word into it, pitch the yeast, and be able to roll it over into the spot where I ferment. Do you ferment like in a, in a freezer or something like that? No, I'm a um, I'm kind of a uh, hip shot guy. I've got pretty good temperature controlled in my basement. Uh, it's it's really good for ales. I, I, I don't really do a lot of um, specific temperature control mm-hmm. uh, just because of the environment that I've got in my daylight basement. Right. So so basically, the temperature in your basement is such that uh, you don't need to worry about doing anything. Yeah. And if I were to, uh, you know, starting from this point, if I were, I'm sure I could MacGyver some kind of a uh, a way to lift that into the, the uh, a freezer if I had a fermenting chamber like that. Right. And I think the the obvious um, solution uh, for most pea brewers, because I, I would hope that none of it, some of us have, or mo- all of us have at least one friend, that you could have an assistant that would be able to do that one thing that you can't do. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, would you come over and lift something for me? I'll give you a beer. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Drew, are you getting worried about your old age? No, that's why I go and lift heavy things. <laughs> Well, hopefully your body will hold up. I spent my working career lifting heavy things, and I think that that's probably something that's contributing to my uh, my infirmity now. Yeah, well, I'm actually in really, I, I think I'm in re- relatively good shape. I mean, Drew's really um, rocked it out lately. But, um, you know, I think this is just an anomaly for me. I've never had any kind of limits like this at all. The rest of me is in, you know, I've been able to lift pretty heavy weights and stay in pretty good shape for most of my life. Yeah, you know, when I started brewing about 20 years ago, I didn't even ever account for anything like this happening, you know? I just kind of felt like, well, let's just do it. And I never thought that there might come a day when I I couldn't lift things and carry things around. Yeah. Let me ask this, you know, so you guys both talked about the fact that you have pumps going and, you know, a lot of things that you can move without actually having to, you know, lift anything. Have either of you given thought to the idea of, you know, just brewing smaller? Yeah, I did. Uh, my original idea was to, like, brew three-and-a-half-gallon batches, which would mean that I could lift things uh, pretty much as I needed to. But then I realized that I could still stay at five gallons as long as I uh, divided it into two kegs for serving. Although, uh, when I was talking to Brad about this whole idea... He mentioned, well, geez, you know, we both have Picos, and I've got a Zymatic, so that's that's a real solution, too. Yeah, a small system, you know, a microsystem like that is definitely an option. But also, I, I was thinking that it could be a chance for me to actually brew a little bit more. And if I were to brew a, you know, a six-gallon batch or a seven-gallon batch, I just split it between two fermenters, um, and then I'd have... You know, as much beer as I usually make, or uh, well, actually, I make ten-gallon batches. Um, but if but if you divide it up into those smaller increments, you could even do you know, uh, you know whatever division you want. Yeah, so it's kind of like uh, the theory is divide and conquer, huh? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, man. Well, listen, I'm going to let you uh, sit back in your easy chair now and uh, dream of uh, being able to brew again. What do you think? In a month you'll be back to brewing? Uh, that's what I'm looking at. I'm feeling really good. And uh, I think I did uh, I did anticipate this so much, and I brewed ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, whenever you're preparing for the apocalyptic uh, moment, then, you know, you prepare. So I've got I've got a pretty good surplus now, so I think a month um, 
a little bit more maybe would be about what I'm looking at. Yeah, right. Well, good luck, man. I'll be uh, I'll be watching to set my own schedule. And I'm definitely in your corner, Denny. <laughs> okay, buddy. Talk to you later. Thanks a lot, Brant. Sure. So that's it. You know, we're going to have to come up with ways to not lift because we have a 50 pound lifting limit and it just adds a little creativity to it. And especially for me, cause I still want to keep it as cheap and easy as possible. So, uh, you know, Brad has a nice tiered system to work on. I'm uh, working on using pumps and CO2 to move things around and avoid lifting. And uh, hopefully that's going to enable me to keep brewing even for more years. Yep, getting old isn't for the weak. <laughs> no, it's not, man. And uh, in, in 20 years, if I'm still around, I'll be curious to see what you're doing. In 20 years, if I'm still around, I'll be curious to see what I'm doing. <laughs> and now from uh, brewing without lifting, uh, we'll go into a real quick question that came in. And we decided that we talk about in the brewing uh, segment because we've talked about yeast starters in the past. But a uh, friend of the podcast, Paul Nicodem, who uh, we're going to see in a couple of weeks. Hi, Paul. Uh, he's down in Australia. He sent in a question about starters saying, hey, you know, do you do your lager starters at lager temps or at room temps? And I've seen a lot of people uh, talk about this in the past because you get people who are like, oh, well, you know, look, if you do your your lager yeast at sort of a room temp, then that's going to culture the yeast to do something different than if you do it at proper fermentation temps. You know, look, digging into the research and looking at the things that we've done in the past, uh, what I'll tell you is, no, you do the things at you know, your room temperature or, you know, I like to do mine a slightly cooler. So I do mine at like ale temperatures. And it's because really what is the point of your starter, except for to maximize yeast growth. You know, the point of your fermentation temperature controls is to maximize flavor production and, you know, proper yeast behavior. In this particular case, we want more cells. We need more cells. We need the dudes. So in this particular case, go warm, go big and let it grow. Yeah, always remember that you're growing yeast. You're not making beer, and yeast grows better at warmer temperatures. Now, um, I make my uh, my shaken, not stirred 007 starters with a quart of wort, and I pitch that whole thing. And even fermenting at room temp, I've discovered that there are no off flavors from doing that. But I'm curious, why do you do yours a little cooler? Uh, paranoia. No real good reason. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, man, there, there, there is no good reason. Have, have, have the conviction of your principles there. Yeah, well, I mean, it, particularly in the light of the fact that I, I still tend to cold crash my starters and decant the wort because I don't want to do that, uh, or I don't want to add that wort to the beer. Which, by the way, that's an experiment we should do. Um, you know, do a starter, uh, starter wort in, and starter wort decanted. I, I've done that experiment. Well, I know, but we need to have the Igors do it. Okay. Um, you know, bring it to the masses, you know, see what the results are. But no, I, I do it just out of my own predilections. Uh, and like I said, I still decant the starter wort because I'm me after cold crashing. I'd prefer to have, you know, the beer I made be the beer I made. So I know it's a little ridiculous, but it is what it is. You know, I, I used to do the whole uh, crash and decant thing too, because I was sure that I could taste it. And uh, once I finally had faith in my method and gave it a try, I found out that that was not the case whatsoever. So, uh, you know, do, it's your beer. Do what you want. You get to make all those decisions, but I would encourage you to try it. Yeah, well, I'm a man of weak faith. 
But the point still stands for yeast growth in starters. You're looking to maximize the temperature, not the, you know, not the acculturation. So yeah, I would right. go, go warm, go agitation, make those yeast happen. Yep, exactly. All right. Okay. Time for the lounge. Time for the lounge and time for us to get liberated. All right. We're going to head over to the lounge and uh, we're going to listen to an interview that Drew did with the guys from Liberation Brewing in Long Beach. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. Here in the lounge, and uh, Drew has been on the road again visiting breweries. So, what's this one all about? Well, so just a little bit down the 710 from me is the city of Long Beach, famous for rap music and being one of the largest ports on the West Coast. And now they're even actually starting to get their own breweries. So, you're going to hear from a couple of the breweries here in short order. And one of the ones I went to is brand new one in the Bixby Knowles neighborhood. So. A lot of people think of downtown Long Beach as Long Beach proper, but, you know, Long Beach spreads out because Southern California. And in the Bixby Knowles area, there are a couple of new breweries that are coming up. And one of them was opened up by a, a fellow that you may have heard of in the past, uh, Dan Regan. But you may have heard of him in a different context because Dan used to be a member of Real Big Fish, which, you know, if you're a kid of the 90s you know, and were into ska punk, you know that band well and true. And so... At some point in time, you know, as Dan talks about in the interview, uh, you know, rock and roll dreams must abide as family life grows. And so he became a family man and eventually ended up selling cars. But he'd always had this dream of, you know, wanting to have a brewery because he got into good beer when he first joined the band at like the age of 16. And as Real Big Fish would tour around the country, he would go and visit breweries and you know, talk to people and figure things out. And so he is now the CEO of Liberation Brewing Company and opened it up with a couple of partners. And you also hear in this interview from Eric McLaughlin, who's the brewer, and talking about how they went from being home brewers to actually being pro brewers and talking about the challenges of their system and their space and everything else. Kind of uh, just a really interesting little space. And so go ahead. Let's give this a listen and figure out how rock and roll dreams become beery dreams. So no, which, which beer did we end up getting here? Uh, this is the Brown Ale. And what's the brown ale's name? Uh, John Brown Ale. John Brown. <laughs> Just a, a, a nice American brown, right? You know, right. Yeah, kind of clean and caramelly. And one of those things I wish more people would make. Yeah, we were, uh, I think I was just yelling at the sky one day. Um, everyone who makes ambers and browns these days make, you know, brown-colored IPAs and brown-colored ambers. Or, I mean, uh, brown-colored Amber-colored amber IPAs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's rewind that and start. Yeah. Um, and so Eric's like, oh, yeah. All right. 
Challenge accepted. <laughs> well, I've been arguing now for a couple of years, and I guess maybe I'm just arguing impotently or yelling at the sky mm-hmm. that people need to make more browns because we're in this sort of playful period for the beer world. Mm-hmm. And brown ale makes a hell of a base for putting odd flavors in Yeah, almost anything. Oh, yeah. No, we're going to do... A, 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 we did a coffee version of this, and uh, I think it's next weekend... We're doing that the uh, craft beer Long Beach Fest, and we're going to do a coffee vanilla version of this. Oh, nice! Yeah. So you get, get your get your latte in the in the yeah. beer form. <laughs> well, okay. So now, obviously, we're having beer, which means that we're talking in front of microphones, which is one of my favorite occupations. <laughs> uh, why don't we uh, Why don't we clue the audience into where we're at and who I'm talking to? Well, we're at uh, Liberation Brewing Company in Long Beach, California, in the uh, Bixby Knowles neighborhood, or Brewery Knowles, as we're calling it now. And uh, my name is Dan, and uh, I started uh, Liberation Brewing with my buddy Eric over here. Hi. You can't see him. This is radio. <laughs> <laughs> Eric brews the beer, and uh, we have a third partner, Michael, who uh, does the math and looks at the spreadsheets. <laughs> so, Arguably an underrated uh, part oh, of Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'd never have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for the brains of the operation. So let's get into the to the baseline story here. Uh, Dan, how did you get into beer enough that you wanted to have a brewery? Uh, I was um, I was in a band called Real Big Fish. It was Just a small band. A little band from the 90s. And uh, so, I, you know, I joined at 16 and, uh, in 1993. And, uh, you know, the band would be playing bars and things like that. And, and uh, I wasn't allowed into the bar, into the club. Uh, so my feet, they literally, the, the, the promoter would throw me on his back and walk me into the dressing room. So my feet didn't technically hit the ground. And so I'd have to like hang out in the back and they would just bring me beer. And, and eventually I learned I could ask for better beer than, you know, the usual, uh, suds in a can kind of thing. And, uh, so yeah, at 16, I was drinking Sierra Nevada and there was Grant's Porter and, uh, Anderson Valley Amber, uh, the Boont Amber. So oh. hanging around and, and, uh, and I just kept, kept up with beer as the years went on. And uh, eventually the band started playing breweries. We would roll into town and the guys and I would get on the Twitter machine and, and say, hey, we're, we're coming into Boulder. What brewery should we check out? And uh, people would give us ideas and, and we would talk to the bartenders and eventually get... Um, tours you know they say well you guys say dude a lot you must not be from around here yeah we're from california we're in a band oh come check out the tanks and uh so i started um around the same time i was homebrewing uh when did we start we started like the same time yeah i think it was uh maybe 10 years ago yeah and uh and so it was you know like any homebrewer right away i started thinking i could do this as a job you know and uh so seeing behind the scenes in, in all the bre- these breweries all over the country was uh, pretty cool. And that definitely planted the seed. Like, okay, someday, maybe this is my, the next chapter of my life. So Eric and I started brewing together, and um, he, I was always gone. So he got better than me really quickly. <laughs> and it was like, all right, uh, I'll just drink your beer. That sounds like a good plan. Oh, yeah, yeah, when you were touring, I was stuck in a cubicle. <laughs> right. So every weekend, I was hiding in the garage and... Uh, decompressing from office work. 
that that's not that's the story of no other brewer in the world right <laughs> so how, how many brewers out there do you talk to and like so hey, how'd you get your start oh i started as a home brewer what'd you do for a career well i did something technical in an office and sat in a cubicle all day yeah yeah a lot of engineers a lot of yeah just dreaming all right so you started home i mean you guys started home brewing together do you guys remember what the first beer was that you that you made go ahead um my first beer was a uh it was a belgian quad i got pretty ambitious on that first batch and it ended up going down the drain because I underpitched it. I had no temperature control. I just didn't know what I was doing. And the second batch was still a Belgian Golden Strong, and I underpitched it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just leaning in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was you started all green, or that was a- no, no. I think the first six were uh, uh, partial. Oh, they were kits or something. Yeah, yeah. Little extra little grain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from Steinfiller's local to yeah. here in Long Beach. Yes. I still shop there. <laughs> Steinfiller's exactly. <laughs> And I mean, to me, I just, I think that's kind of the opposite of, I think like how, how a lot of homebrewers start, you know, like almost every homebrewer I know, it's like that first batch of beer, uh, you know, I'm going to go make the stout or I'm going to make this pale ale. And like that first batch is like, this is the best beer. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you're like me, I did my second batch and I hadn't quite learned all the lessons about sanitation and how important that was. <laughs> and so my next one was a, a stronger red mm-hmm. and I used that to make a lot of beans because it's awful <laughs> yeah i was in this i was in a similar boat uh i had a friend named joel who's going to start running our trivia night hey joel uh who right out of high school was dating an older woman and she could get him beer and they started home brewing and things like that and uh so he was he was one of the first home brewers i knew and he kept telling me okay when you start home brewing you you're gonna think you're cleaning enough but you're not and your beer's gonna come out infected and you're going to need to do more batches but it's just how it is it happens to everybody so i was like okay that's if that's what's going to happen i'm going to really clean well <laughs> and yeah there was, my beer had iodine in it it tasted like <laughs> iodine i called it pool water amber <laughs> it was a all extract came with the buckets that i got at stein fillers and you know, you'd get through halfway through your second one and it felt like an ice pick was going in your temple. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a good flavor. Yeah. So. Well, I, I think a lot of homebrewers, you know, the ones who start to take the sanitation seriously, there's that natural learning curve where, <laughs> you know, at first you're super obsessive and you're like, Oh my God, don't breathe on this. You know, like big rubber gloves all the way up to your elbows because, you know, not because you're dealing with any sort of dangerous chemicals like you would be here in a professional brewery, but because mm-hmm. you're like, I must keep my skin away from everything. And then eventually at some point in time, you figure out about the right level between that and the guy who just goes and sticks his arm in the bucket and swirls it around real quick. <laughs> I've known a few of those too. That's right. So do you remember what was the first beer that you made, uh, Eric, that, that you went, I've got this. Uh, it was actually a, a, a Tasty McDowell's Janice Brown. The good old Janice Brown. Yeah, that was that turned out great. It was bottle conditioned. And I remember uh, one of the old coworkers at a, uh, the office job was like, "This is the best beer you've made." Like, this is the best beer I've made. <laughs> like, Yay! I was like, I think I, I think I can do this. That's cool. Uh, and then, so now you guys, I mean, you're moving along different tracks, but you know, kind of still both doing the homebrewing thing and, and getting better and still being deeply involved in the scene. So at what point in time does that realization that you had that every, that you said every homebrewer has, you know, like, Hey, I can do this. It was at- probably 2011. I, I, you know, we started floating it around. Um, and 
starting to do like the really early research, researching what we needed to research, right? It was like, okay, what are we going to need to learn uh, to even begin to write a business plan? And to set um, the stage here in Long Beach, I mean, what Beachwood was here and mm-hmm. Rock Bottom was here. Yeah, we had some of the franchise spots. And uh, that was pretty much it, right? Yeah, there's a, there's one called oh, Belmont, Belmont Brewing yeah. Company that's been around since the 80s, right? Yep. I think so, yeah. Or 89. They've been around for a long time. So, I mean, relatively small scene. The city probably not having a lot of experience dealing with, you know, somebody wanting to open up a brewery. I mean, heck, at that point in time, L.A. barely had much of anything. We had Eagle Rock and Smog City and a couple others. There was a healthy beer scene uh, because bars were carrying pretty good beer, but... um, yeah, yeah. The and and the only breweries that were around were pubs. You know, they had food, and so the the city really had no idea what they wanted to do. They knew they wanted to attract more breweries, uh, and they, but so they they decided they'd put together a rule book, um, an ordinance. The beer ordinance is what we called it, and they went around and they talked to uh, people who were kind of dipping their toe in the water mm-hmm. uh, that it had gotten out that they were you know researching. Uh, putting together breweries, and we were one of the the groups that was interviewed just to see, like, you know, okay, what are you planning? What would that entail? How can we make it easier for you? What rules can we put in place to protect you or to protect the city? And uh, it, it took a, a year or two, but they got it on the books, and um, yeah, it was kind of nice to actually. And, and I and I faced this a lot in. Uh, music too in composing because like we were talking about how how accessible all this technology is now to rec- uh, to record uh, podcasts with and things like, things like that same thing in in recording music you get a laptop and a couple you know hundred dollar pieces and you can make crazy uh, movie soundtracks these days with keyboards and stuff like that so uh, finding limits actually helps right <laughs> putting Figuring out the frame, the the, the rules of how you're going to do something. Uh, otherwise, you could spend all day just hitting the keyboard, uh, I found. And so the same thing with the brewery. Once we knew, okay, the city's only going to let us stay up until 11. The city says only this many parking spaces, or minimum this many parking spaces. These are all things that, oh, now we can take that and go write a business plan because we know what type of property to look for. We know what type of... Um, what's going to get us in trouble and what isn't. <laughs> so uh, that, that was a really early part of it, um, was sort of teaming up with the city and the development services department and figuring out what's going to make it work for everybody. And then uh, I realized I was in over my head on the business side of it, so I brought in my, my buddy Michael, and, um, and he, he sort of made us audition. He gave <laughs> us, like, checklists. Uh, he said, okay, if I'm going to join you guys... I'm going to do this list, you're going to do this list, and you're going to do this list. And we each had our list to research. And uh, like, okay, this is off to a good start. Now we've got motivation, you know. And uh, we did all of our research, dumped everything into a Google Drive, and started putting together the business plan. And right around the same time, right around 2013, my second child, my son Dean, was born. And, uh, uh, you know, my wife had had it. 20 years on the road. <laughs> and she's like, all right. You uh, you said you if we ever had another kid you'd uh, you'd leave the band. I said, yeah, I've been looking for a job, and I was never looking for a job. <laughs> so she found a job for me. She talked to a friend of mine that I'd grown up with. His uncle Rant was the sales manager at a BMW and mini dealership in Torrance, and uh, she's like, yeah, I got you uh, an interview. I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Guess I got to stop being a rock star. Oh. 
And uh, so right away I was like, all right, we're writing the business plan. Let's get it going. And uh, that was really the beginning of it. So we, you know, we've decided that, okay, we have to settle down for a serious adult life now. Yeah. Yeah. So I started selling cars and, uh, you know, they, they took a chance on me at the dealership. They were like, well, we can teach you to sell cars. You already have this built in, you know, ability to talk to people and tell stories about yourself a lot. So <laughs> that's the first thing. We can't teach people that. So, I, yeah, I sold cars. And I was in Torrance. So every day I'd run over to uh, Smog and Monkish and, um, and then a Phantom Carriage open. And I, that was right on my way home. It was very convenient. And uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, did more research and they were all very supportive every time I'd ask them questions and, and, um, start, we started the social media pages and that was, cat was out of the bag. I feel like we started that pretty early. Yeah, it was pretty early. <laughs> I was going to say, I, 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 I heard things about the brewery and felt like, you know, a dog's age ago. <laughs> yeah. It was this, this debate we were having where do we, do we start posting and announcing things and take people along for their journey or do we come out fully formed? And, uh, I quixotically, uh, insisted <laughs> that we, we take people along for the journey. Uh, well, you introduced, you introduced me to the term burn the ships. Yeah. Right. That was, yeah. and I took that from, uh, hunt for red October, I think <laughs> <laughs> example of Cortez and his men. Yeah. 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 It's like as soon as it's out there, then it forced us to do things. So sometimes I would make announcements long before we were ready. Well, it never it, it never hurts to put it out there. I mean, one, you get some good feelers to see whether or not you know people are actually interested in your yeah, idea. Right. And two, yeah, it starts to build up the buzz, which means that when you start telling people, "Hey, you're doing this thing," you know, they may actually take you a little bit more seriously. Yeah, you can't back down. Yeah. Um, I, I I do know that there have been a number of breweries out there I've seen that announced, "Hey, we're coming soon," and then never come right yeah the reality hits you right in the in the junk <laughs> we uh the city was really helpful um once we got you know we had our plans drawn up and went through the city they you know there were some questions or things that came up but it was never no it was never no it was always well, what is this what you know this and we would bring in uh, an expert say here's how you're not going to get in trouble <laughs> and they'd be oh, okay that's great uh, we like to hear that you know and uh yeah, I think the, our biggest hang-up was with our, our, um, the owner of our building, uh, just because it was his first property. He had inherited it from his father, and it was our first time uh, leasing a property for a business. So we, I think we both had uh, different expectations. Well, and not to mention, I mean, when you come in as a brewery, you're doing a lot of work to the building to make it suitable, you know, changing things up, drainage. And exactly, cutting yeah. Cutting the floors. Just and heavy-duty changes, and so... Uh, we ended up arguing and arguing and arguing and then um, renegotiating the lease. Uh, so, I mean, it, it definitely held us up at least a year uh, before shovels were in the ground. And then finally we just burnt the ships. We just started <laughs> breaking stuff and figured he'd catch on. And now it's delightful. Now we have a great relationship. Well, let's talk a little bit about the neighborhood. So we're in Bixby Knolls. Mm -hmm. So what's the... What's the kind of composition of the neighborhood, you know, and the, the demographic and the, the sort of It's uh, This is a, a strange neighborhood. It's been around a long time. It's one of the older neighborhoods in Long Beach. Uh, I think uh, it was um, uh, post-World War II housing uh, uh, in chunks of it. And then there was uh, um, some of the houses back behind us, the Cal Heights neighborhood, 
Uh, some of those go back to the teens and 20s. So the garages are all very small. <laughs> the doorways are all very, there's Murphy beds. It's pretty fun. Uh, and so they're, they're uh, one of the most recognized historical housing associations or something in the, in the state. And you still drive by uh, oil derricks. Right, know, yeah. The way in here. Yeah, so uh, we found this neighborhood uh, because um, my par- our partner Michael and I went to the junior high back here, Hughes Middle School. And we used to cruise around the neighborhood, uh, toilet papering and getting in trouble. And so, uh, so you go from being a neighborhood hoodlum yeah. to a neighborhood <laughs> builder upper. We just remembered how nice it was and how, how uh, cozy. And, um, and then they, the Bixby Knowles Business Association is very active. They have a First Fridays event that goes on once a month. And they get everybody going and they have bands and things like that. And the, and the head of that, his name's Blair Cohn, he's, he's just a go-getter and... Uh, we were really impressed with all the things that he, he does for the neighborhood. And then we're, it's weird, we're, we're in this sort of crossroads where the business association uh, covers the street, but we're technically in the Cal Heights neighborhood, which is the historic home sort of zone. And so we, we benefit from both groups and uh, having their meetings here and um, just being very active. So we have a lot of neighbors that, that just walk over, you know, um, a lot of breweries are in more industrial spots, mm-hmm. and, and that was an early stage of our of our business plan. It was like, yeah, people will find us. It'll be like a treasure map, and uh, we'll just make great beer, and you know they'll have to earn it. And uh, <laughs> it's usually not the world's best idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. and then and then we found this awesome uh, you know storefront um, in a busy on a busy street. I'm like, well, yeah, people actually just seeing it would be pretty nice too. <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh because I parked behind the, the brewery where you guys have your customer parking. Mm-hmm. And I parked right underneath the tree. And right there's a, a gate that says, beware of the dog. But it's a gate into somebody's backyard. <laughs> yeah. So, like, literally, there's somebody here in Long Beach who has a gate directly to your brewery. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, they're really supportive. Everybody, every time we, I check with everybody to see if they were too noise or anything, they're like, no, uh, would it be awkward if I climbed over my fence? Like, no, please do. <laughs> you know? And Saturday mornings, we get the dads lined up outside with uh, babies strapped to their chest and the dog in hand. Like, I said I'd walk the dog. It's noon. <laughs> I, need, I need some help. <laughs> well, and so what was this building beforehand? Because, I mean, yeah, we are right on Atlantic Boulevard. I mean, yeah. This is a busy, busy street. Yeah, this was a 98-cent store. It was one cent cheaper, one cent more spooky <laughs> yes, uh, yes that's right come and get all your high quality merchandise at the 98 cents <laughs> exactly it was pretty <laughs> never run, mind the chemicals pretty run down uh padlocks on the bathrooms for good reason uh it had dented soup cans and <laughs> all kinds of really fragrant uh bath products uh it just your eyes would burn with the with the chemicals that were here uh Some household the- but well, i remember like you and mike had Said, "Oh, go go check out this uh, spot that we're looking at on Atlantic, and it's still an operating ninety-eight cent store. Like you guys are out of your minds." Yeah, they wouldn't turn the air <laughs> conditioning on because it was too hot or it was too expensive, so they would just blow fans everywhere, all at eye level. <laughs> it was crazy, and so we came in, and the owners here, and we're like, you know, this ceiling is too too low. It was about nine feet up, and." Uh, He's like, oh, no, 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 push past that, and, and you'll see the, 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 the real ceiling. Well, okay. So we got on a ladder, and we pushed up through the, the drop ceiling, and there was a ceiling up there, and it was, it was maybe two feet higher. We're like, I don't know, you know, someday we're going to expand, and 
put bigger tanks in here. I don't think this is high enough. So we took off and went looking for other places. And a couple months, uh, uh, I think two months later, he called us and said, oh, no, 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 that was the second ceiling. There's the real roof line if you look up past it. We're like, why did it take you two months to call back? You know. So yeah, we came in and we pushed up past the second ceiling. And uh, yeah, we had a nice 14-foot uh, clearance in the middle of the place. And I was going to uh, say, yeah, you've got plenty of, plenty of room to go up. Yeah. Right so that, that kind of was the only thing really holding us back. Because we knew we could gut it and, and uh, do what we wanted with it. No, one, no one's feelings would be hurt. <laughs> uh, before that, it was a CNR Clothiers. Uh, what a difference a day makes. And <laughs> so it, uh, it had mirrors everywhere. It had um, uh, all the walls were lined with uh, coat racks. And there were like, uh, so when they put the 98 cent store in, they just kind of built out from there. They didn't take anything out from the, from the clothing store. So it was kind of like rings on a tree. We kept going through the walls and finding more and more stuff. Uh, so well, cool. As long as you're finding more stuff like that and not like dead bodies or right. yeah. secret tunnels. Or, yeah. Yeah. It, is, it is the L.A. area. You could possibly find secret tunnels yeah. to very odd places. Or oil. Or, we didn't, certainly didn't find any oil. That was... Would have changed the complexity of the brewery. It certainly changed the finances. Yeah. Well, and so let's actually talk a little bit about the brewery then. Uh, so we're here in this neighborhood. What is the what is the goal for the brewery? What's the story that you're trying to tell? You know, like you got some people who, you know, like uh, Long Beach Beer Lab, where they're being very playful and combining bread and beer, or yeah. Beachwood, who's just dominating over there on the on, on the beach side of things. I remember them. Yeah. So uh, what uh, what is uh, what's the story that you guys are having here? Well, for the longest time, you know, all the beer was downtown, uh, and not having grown up hanging out downtown i uh i think we were just like long beach has all these awesome little neighborhoods uh it's it's like a collection of cities all in one city so you know let's let's go uh spearhead a, a zone outside of downtown and that's one of the ways we found our way here um and when i first started pitching this idea this crazy idea to the guys i was like well the only business model i know is being in a punk band a punk ska band and so you know we'll start small and we'll build it to a critical mass and uh and almost be forced to expand uh, by the applause of the of the <laughs> beer lovers <laughs> but um yeah because that's that's the only thing i'd experienced working right mm -hmm. as opposed to just reading things in books on how to start a business and i was like well let's go with what what we trust and luckily um there, there started to be this kind of uh, almost backlash in the brewing world where a lot of these uh, brewers from, from bigger companies would sort of break off and, and go out to the woods and find themselves again and brew on smaller systems and go like, wait, what did, why, how did I get into this? And so we, we took that lesson uh, and we said, yeah, this is all right. We can start small, even though everyone says there's a formula and you got to have seven barrel or 10 barrel and everyone thinks they know what what's best it's like eh, let's start small it feels right to just to get it right to do small batches and and uh flip them really quick and and just really dial in what we're doing and uh and so that was the idea on the five barrels the, the mighty five barrels we've got back there <laughs> well okay so let's actually jump into brewing 
you know, so yeah, we've got a five barrel, uh, five barrel system in the back. And of course, what was funny to me was when I came in to see the brewery, I was like, okay, here, tiny little kettle. You know? <laughs> and then these two tanks with glycol on them. And I'm like, wait, hold on a second. I'm counting like, you know, 12 beers up front. How, how's that happening with two tanks and everything else? I, I, I don't sleep. <laughs> and also I have uh, six tanks hidden away. <laughs> so you, you, you have a cold, uh, a well, a cellar of sorts, yeah. you know, a, a yes. separate room. A cellar. A cellar. <laughs> we, we've had a little debate over what to call that room. And I think on the plans, it actually says fermentation room. But traditionally, you would call it a cellar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even though mm, ground level. Um, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's talk about the tanks that you actually have in the room, because I thought those were kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. They're uh, five-barrel plastic tanks uh, outfitted with stainless steel coils and uh, little homebrew pumps, and uh, we have a cold liquor tank in our, our cold box, so whenever the uh, uh, temperature probe goes off, starts circulating cold water through those those uh, coils uh, during active fermentation, and it, it's surprisingly uh, effective. I would, yeah, not that it would. <laughs> yeah, there there was there was a brief moment where I thought this this is probably not going to work, and you know we, we, I made a half. Uh, over the summer and fermented at 62 degrees and uh, we have a Kolsch that's lagering right now that was fermented at I think 63 or 64 and mm -hmm. I just we have a double IPA that's in that's in the conditioning tank that did not <laughs> magically get up to 75 so it works <laughs> well and just to paint the picture for the people who haven't actually seen the tanks uh, yeah these are these are sort of your big plastic you know water supply tanks and then what you have hanging down in them is, you know, a fairly sizable uh, a couple of loops of uh, stainless steel, you know, a nice stainless steel coil and put output, just think like an immersion chiller, which is made with stainless steel. Yeah. And I know a lot of people nowadays are used to thinking about, oh, you know, you got a glycol jacket and you pump that through and, and everything. And your conditioning tanks have glycol jackets on them. But that coil idea, I mean, that is an old idea. You know, they used to call that a, a temperator. And so one of the one of the funniest things I've ever seen in the world was going to Bruges and going taking a tour of the Hoffman oh, Brewery. Geez. And you go to the Hoffman, and they have big uh, a big room with open copper tanks, and inside of it are these copper coils that they did the exact same thing. That's so cool. <laughs> so it's. It's a thing that sounds like to modern brewers, like, hey, that seems sort of weird and, you know, not quite right. But you go and you dig back into history and it's exactly something people were doing not even that long ago. I mean, that, I think they stopped using those about, you know, 50 years ago. But still, for, you know, a place that's starting out, it's perfectly workable technology. Yeah, I think, I think people get hung up on, on the equipment. Uh, boys like to buy toys. And, <laughs> and so... You know, there's this group think and 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 uh, sometimes they forget the the elements involved in making beer and and the final product are, are what matters, right? Not not spending the most money or or uh, you know buying what everybody else has or things like that. So that that's another way when we were approaching this, like, well, I think we can do it this way and uh, not blow the bank on the opening and then save up for an eventual, you know, uh, expansion, uh, pay off all of our debts. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing you were in a, in a ska band and not like a prog rock band. <laughs> right. Because that would have been the absolute 
opposite mentality. Right? I love I love myself some King Crimson, but uh, yeah, I need, a little more I, DIY than that. I need, I need another synth. I need I need more pedals. <laughs> but um, well, yeah, and right now you guys have what, what do we have on tap right uh, now? We have thirteen beers right now. Thirteen, yeah. So thirteen beers, and one of the things I noted and that I really dug is the fact that you only have one beer that's above 7%. Right. You know, almost everything else is in that 4 to 6 range, you know, and your biggest beer is 7.4, which is a, a really nice change of pace from so many other breweries out there where it's like, you know, so what's your lightest beer? Five and a half. Oh, boy. You know, <laughs> this is going to be a long day. Well, yeah, I've been to other breweries, and I usually want to drink the under 5% beer because I want to have multiple beers. No. I want to see what they're do- they're up to. And what, yeah, what I, don't, they're about. I don't. I don't do taster sets. I order full <laughs> beers. So they better be uh, enough that I can get through the day, like you said. Well, and for you guys, even your tasters are. You know, I mean, they're not small tasters. I mean, these are at least a reasonable portion of beers, so you can at least get some good yeah, idea. Exactly. You know, as opposed to like where you walk into some places and it's like you know you got your you know three ounce shot glass yeah. of beer and you're like. Well, that's going to tell me almost nothing. <laughs> yeah, we were sort of dragged into the into the flights thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm anti flights. Like, the, you know, I mean, beyond like backing up the line at the bar, it's mm-hmm. people walking out with five or six different beers. You know, they're, they're warming up and mm-hmm. they haven't been sampled yet, and they're losing carbonation. So, we, I. <laughs> compromise and agree to doing a flight of three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're but still, they're, yeah, nice they're still, by yeah. the time you get to the third one. Yeah. Well, and for me, at least as a guy who runs around to breweries, I mean, the one thing I will give flights credit for is the ability to sort of quickly get an overall picture. Oh, yeah. And then be able to focus in. Cause I mean, you can walk, I mean, you walk into a brewery and you have no clue, you know, because they've got 20 beers on tap and, right. you know, some of those are going to be in the brewer's wheelhouse and some of those are going to be a stretch. And, try and quickly figure out the character of a place. And sometimes those can help. But yeah, I think at some point in time, to me, you haven't really visited a brewery, you know, quote unquote, visited a brewery until you've at least sat down and had one full glass of beer at the brewery. Yeah. Yeah, It's like the, the flight is good for you to be able to dial in what it is that you want. And then you have the beer. And as far as things that, uh, you know, when you're getting customer feedback or Yelp reviews or whatever, um, things that you can actually change, uh, this was one of them that we could change, right? Um, we, we're a production brewery. We don't have a restaurant in here. And that's really befuddling to a lot of our neighbors. Um, what do you mean I can't come in and get a burger? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but that's not something we can change. They can complain about it all they want. And, and we sympathize and we get food trucks in. And there's uh, an awesome Mexican place right next door. $1.50 Langua Tacos, people. <laughs> it goes great with beer. But, um, I'll take it. But yeah, we, you know, so, but yeah, ordering some flight boards and, and uh, pouring a smaller pour into the glasses we already had and putting them out on the table. That, yeah, that's fine. That's easy. We can take, take care of that for you. Well, I mean, it turns out, like, even sometimes if there's something that you are ethically opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, setting up a big flight of things, sometimes, you know, you just have to bite the bullet and kind of yeah. go, oh, all right, this it's, is what people want. It's what they want. They know yeah, what they want. It's, it's like the IPA thing. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, if you... If it, I, I, I still hear of brewers planning on opening up, and they're like, "Yeah, we're going to be different. We're not going to we're, we're not going to make an IPA." I'm like, "That will last for about four months." Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the first few weeks we were open, I kept getting that question, like, 
Where's the IPA? Where's it? It's like I if there's one in the tank, it's coming, and then all of a sudden, there's like five IPAs on the board. <laughs> I I didn't realize I would be that person. <laughs> hey, it's a business. Yeah, people, uh, people got to make this run. So, Eric, I, I have to ask the question. I I always ask people is describe your philosophy as a brewer, but omitting the word balance. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I can. <laughs> uh, and the word drinkable. <laughs> uh, most of my grain bills are very simple. Um, what's another word for balance? <laughs> I should just start coming with the source for the technical get because these are the allowed words. <laughs> I hate that game. <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing that, I, that I've noticed so far is, I mean, yeah, you're right. Simple malt bills, crisp hop profile when, you know, when hops are intended to be showcased. Like, it doesn't feel like there's, you know, throw all the hops at the kettle at all the time. Oh, yeah. You know? Jackrabbit, uh, our house IPA, is weird because it has three different hops for mm-hmm. uh, uh, the flavor additions, and I usually it's just two. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it it really does strike me that a lot of what I've, what I've been tasting, it's, it comes down to that simplicity, you know, sort of stay focused, you know, and let the ingredients shine through and then also not trying to, you know, be too silly and out there. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> yeah. There's time for it. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I worked in the cellar at dudes for two and a half years and I remember, uh, you know, I'm sure it wasn't a fermentation room <laughs> familiar oh. with, Dudes, that they have flavored beers. And I remember mm-hmm. sitting in the interview uh, uh, with Scott, Toby, and Alex, who was the then uh, master brewer. And uh, Toby goes, well, why are you interested in working with us? Like, Honestly, you guys make beer a lot differently than I do at home. Like, it's, it's a different perspective that I don't have, and I want to see how you guys do it. And he kind of just nodded and smiled. And like, oh, I think that was a good answer. <laughs> well, and dudes started in Torrance, and I think what they have like three tasting rooms. I, now? I think they have more than three tasting rooms right now. <laughs> like, I, I am constantly surprised by how much beer that place makes. <laughs> yeah, so because they still have the original Torrance location, they have one up all, all the way up in uh, Santa, Santa Clarita. Clarita. They have another one out in uh, Thousand Oaks. Yes, uh, Huntington Beach, Santa Monica just opened. It's yeah. it's intense. Like, yeah. so yeah, d- dudes is. Dudes is interesting in that way because I think for years it was always the idea was, okay, I'm going to open up a brewery and, and like you said, start small. Or maybe maybe if you have enough funding behind you, you start big. And there have been a couple of those recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then grow, grow, grow. And eventually the idea of becoming like, you know, a big regional type thing, right? You know, become like a Stone or a New Belgium or Sierra Nevada, you know. And to my mind, I think the ship has long since sailed on being able to crack into that tier. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, right now, right now that's a really hard tier to be operating in. Because you know so many people are, uh, you know, coming to places like their little local neighborhood brewery, like right, like here. Right. Um, but I think the thing that we are going to see is more of like what Dudes is doing, where now it becomes, okay, great, we have the brewery, and now we have all these satellite tap rooms oh, you know, yeah, to expand yeah. the neighborhood concept. Yeah, and I, th- I think if you're that size, it's just a smart thing to do. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, selling your kegs through a distributor or selling the kegs over your own counter, like the profit margins are so much better. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and so, okay, you mentioned dudes. Where else did you, on your journey from homebrewer to here, where else did you go? I, I started working at Ohana in mm-hmm. was it 2013, I think. Um, I had a mutual friend with uh, Chris Wolowski, and uh, right before he'd left, 
um, I got to see him, see him on a brew day and see what was going on over there on, on that uh, wonky seven barrel system they have. And uh, a couple months later, uh, they made the announcement Chris was moving on to Smog City. Mm-hmm. And I, I ran into him at Steinfiller saying, oh, congratulations. You know, that's really cool. It's like moving on up. He goes, dude, reach out to Carson and Andrew. Like, they're looking for a brewer right now. So I did. I said, hey, I swung by. I think it was like May. And, you know, I want, I want to mop your floors. I'll, I'll, I'll help you uh, grain out and uh, clean kegs, whatever. I just, I just want to learn. And uh, they had brought on uh, Riggs and, and Robert Sanchez and uh, said, yeah, you're going to be brewing with us. Like, oh, okay. So, so I, I felt like I kind of, uh, I didn't pass go. I just, I just jumped right in. Yeah. Jumped right in. And that was a great system to learn on. Cause it's, you know, it's a lot of back and forth. Uh, it's a two vessel system, but it's a weird two vessel system. And uh, <laughs> Carson, it's Andrew's father. Uh, goes, if you can brew on this thing, you can brew anywhere. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. I mean, nothing was hard piped. And it's, you know, it, you're just, all the fundamentals you learn uh, from homebrewing, it, it applies. <laughs> so, but. Well, uh, and, and Ohana still operates in, the, in that sort of weird model where they have the brewery in downtown, but their tasting room is in yeah. yeah. Alhambra. Yeah. It's like, you know, a quite, a, a quite a distance away. I, I don't. I almost, I almost said La Habra. <laughs> Alhambra. Yeah. I, I don't know how many people they'd be able to pull uh, into their downtown LA location. <laughs> I mean, you have Arts District, which is about three miles north of them, mm-hmm. but yeah, they're, they're, it, it's they're, a different land. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're in the very industrial part of downtown. Yeah. But, but again, I mean, that's the interesting part to me about the location that you guys have here is that, I mean, I'm used to thinking of. You know, breweries being in industrial areas or, you know, a lot of those little, like, industrial districts in in Southern California where, you know, like, you know, that's the auto manufacturer. There's your print shop. And here, by the way, here's a brewery and a guy who does neon or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so it is, I mean, to me, like, the fact that you guys have this storefront location, you are on a main drag, and you really are kind of in the middle of the neighborhood is actually a very interesting an interesting selling point for you guys. Yeah. And it just, you know, it just kind of worked out this way. We, we, we had been visiting, um, more industrial spots, uh, but you know, it just didn't shake out. And we liked, we liked everything going on over here. We liked the idea of, um, of being sort of a spearhead, uh, <laughs> uh out in this land. And, uh, <laughs> well, and you're not kidding because um, what they're, two more breweries coming on yeah. right in the neighborhood. Right. We've got ambitious oh, ales going on about a mile away, uh, just North of here. Yeah. There, there's three cause there's a trademark opening. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Trademark. Yeah. And then uh, hog Canyon. Yeah. So it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, more I think it's, uh, exactly. It's one of those things where, you know, the more that you have in the little local area, the more of a draw it is. And then hopefully everybody can kind of just keep feeding each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you, you were saying you were at uh, beer labs, uh, earlier this week and and um we've also got our buddies 10 mile brewing up mm-hmm. on signal hill and invariably when com- customers come into our place they're like yeah we just came from beer labs or we just came from 10 mile or whatever and and our customers say yeah you should go to 10 mile next if you're doing the tour or you should go to beer labs next you know mm-hmm. um because it, you know we all support each other and we're all good buddies and you know we were on the phone with each other for a good solid year, almost every day, like, what did you do? How did, <laughs> how did you get that done? What kind of saw do I get? 
my, my contractor said this. Is he lying? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, that, that is that, that expensive? Oh, oh, oh darn. <laughs> like, I'm still on the phone with uh, Jesse over at 10 Mile, and, and it's just like, hey, keg washer's acting up. Can I swing by? <laughs> yeah, yeah well, the support network helps. I was going to say, to me, that's one of the biggest keys about, you know, sort of small, the smaller side of craft brewing is, and I see this all the time, like Eagle Rock up in, up in L.A. proper, you know, they're constantly helping people out you know it's right like, you know like oh you, you need some help here we'll send one of our dudes over he'll he'll help you get you guys get started or help you diagnose something you know or you know oh you need some extra work capacity okay come on we, we got you covered yeah we've noticed that too that it's easy that it is to hate on the larger breweries the breweries that have sold to bigger companies or you know whatever um they also are less afraid <laughs> so um like we've got a ballast point location here in long beach and their guys come over all the time and you know help give eric advice on you know he'll say well i'm getting this off flavor and yeah i don't know i've been looking up what it could be and they're like oh try this you know mm-hmm. just here, here's a here's something we would try uh, at our place or whatever and to have that that sort of confidence, <laughs> uh, you know, of, of a larger company. Someone throwing out an idea like that is like, okay, all right, yeah, they would they wouldn't mess up some sculpin. <laughs> they, would, they, they know how to fix that, yeah. Um, so I think one of the things we're noticing is that, and I noticed this in in like in the '90s in the in the music business as well that um, with breweries you've got the really big guys that are going for it, and then you've got all of us little scrappy small guys that are that are figuring things out. It's the middle tier that's gonna going to have it the roughest, I think, because they can't quite compete on the big level, um, but they're the biggest guy in whatever town they're in, so they're, uh, you know, they're cranky about the smaller breweries <laughs> opening up. And that was the same thing uh, as a band. We would, um, when the Napster internet uh, downloading music craze hit, our band was like the most affected. I, you know, the bigger artists complained a lot, but they went from making fifty million dollars to twenty million dollars. Right? They were still doing all right mm-hmm. <laughs> on the records, uh, and all the little bands were getting exposure they never would have got before, uh, um, because people were stealing their music, and they could say, "Oh, look, you know, twenty people downloaded our record in Philadelphia. We could go play a show there." But we were still relying on. <laughs> record sales to put gas in the van and stuff and uh and so it really hit us hard and i think i think the same thing's going on with beer right now but uh well the good thing is you can't download a beer you can't download a beer <laughs> we're working on that man. it's our my tupac hologram beer <laughs> well so let me ask uh, you know as we've been talking here where do you guys see the brewing going where where do you hope you're going what do you hope to be able to get on tap or you know how do you hope to expand uh just Probably going to have to make more IPAs. Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, um, eventually kind of start playing around with uh, barrel beers. Probably nothing sour in this building. <laughs> you can do that in the parking lot. So. <laughs> Especially with those plastic tanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look at them. And <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we talked about expanding eventually to a 15 or 20 barrel system. We, we laid all the concrete on our pad. Mm-hmm. It's like eight inches or 10 inches down or something. Yeah. And, um, but you, and you have a big pad with just those two tiny little things. Yeah, yeah, it's adorable. Like dollhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we anticipated the expansion. Everyone was telling us you're going to expand quicker than you think, and I was like, well, I don't know. I think I think we're going to expand pretty quick. I, but uh, as manual as, like, this is the toughest system I've ever brewed on because it's, it's just physically intense. It's still a lot of fun, and I 
don't know, like, I, you know, I, I do want to eventually get like you know, the shiny 15 barrel automated system, but I'm having a good time right now. <laughs> well, just as long as you don't go for the shiny 15 barrel manual system. <laughs> yeah. At that point in time, I think the automation yeah, yeah, is key. <laughs> And uh, as far as where we're planning on going, yeah, we'll expand the brew house, uh, you know, put a patio out front. Um, and then, you know, we kind of like the satellite tasting room model. We, we, uh, that's something that we dream about. Um, a lot of the breweries in the area are starting to get involved in the steel craft uh, mm-hmm. idea where they're dropping these cargo containers in places. So we've been throwing out ideas, you know, maybe... Maybe when you open uh, Steelcraft Medellin, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll do, we'll bring our beer to Colombia. I don't know, but um, right. and, and Steelcraft, I mean, they're literally using shipping containers to go yeah. make like a, a food hall type of concept. You it's know, around pretty cool. The plaza. Yeah. yeah, and there's one here in Long Beach, right? And yeah, they've like got two coffee blocks away from us. And, yeah, coffee and burgers and <laughs> and pizza. Smog City's on there. Smog City's got a satellite there, and and. Uh, it's a captive audience. There's literally a gate around the whole thing. <laughs> so you get in there and it's like, all right, I got to wash this burger down with something. There's beer. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, before we leave, anything else that you want the people to know? Uh, man, we have like a, a tagline. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> got nothing except good beer. Yeah. Thanks for supporting your local brewery, you know, and uh, we hope to see you soon. All right. Well, guys, if you're in the Long Beach area, and hell, even if you're not in the Long Beach area, if you're somewhere in the general Southern California region, you could do a lot worse in your beery travels <laughs> than to come into Long Beach and actually explore what's happening in the city now. Uh, it's come a long way since the time when it was dominated by Rock Bottom and the Yard House. And now there's a bunch of a bunch of places coming, or a bunch of places already open. And as you've heard from these past two uh, interviews I've done, some interesting ideas down here. So get your butts down here, get a pint, enjoy yourself. Cheers. Wow, man. I, I don't know which is worse, uh, being a brewer or being a rock and roller. Well, at least one of them requires less travel. <laughs> That's true, man. You don't have to uh, spend your days on a tour bus on one of them. No. Well, and I'll tell you, Dan and Eric, I mean, the, the brewery's in early days, uh, but they are doing really, uh, really interesting work there. And they're when I was there, they didn't have a beer that was stronger than, I think, 6.7%. And they also had that really amazing American Brown, the John Brown Ale. And I'm really tempted to go take a 40-minute drive to go back down to Liberation and go pick up some Crowlers for the weekend because it's just a nice beer. Yeah, man, I I love uh, American Browns. I'm going to be brewing one in a couple days. There we go. So remember, folks, one of the mantras of the show is more Browns, please. (laughs) That's right. But I will say this also, you know, like I said, there are going to be a couple of interviews coming up from the Bixby Knowles area. Uh, yeah, if you're in the Long Beach area at all, you know, one, you're already in the South Bay area, which is full of breweries here in LA. So you're going to have a good selection of places to choose from. But Bixby Knowles is going to have, in very short order, like five different breweries or brewery tap rooms. So you'll be able to make a very interesting day out of one neighborhood. That's, uh, that's great, man. Uh, time for a road trip again, huh? You know it. But now it's time for questions. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap things up with some questions, a quick tip, and something other than beer. A couple somethings, as a matter of fact. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. 
Chewaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chilaki you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chilaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Autumn has arrived, and so has the opportunity to brew new seasonal styles. Yeast's robust and ruddy private collection offers a fresh pairing of strains for cooler days and palates seeking more body and complexity without compromising approachability. 2782 Starro Prague Lager produces exceptional malt-forward German and Bohemian-style lagers. 1581 Belgian Stout will complement the ester-forward strong ales and other specialty styles. And 9097 Old Ale Blend brings English heritage to your glass with a blend of Saccharomyces and a little Britannomyces to emulate traditional British strong ales and barley wines. These strains are available October through December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. Time to finish up this show and get on with things. So we're going to start off with some questions that people have sent in. And uh, the first one comes from listener Brad Lawrence. Uh, right, you want to read this one? Sure. What Brad writes is, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to prepare for this one. Yeah, I know. What Brad writes in is, uh, there's a specific flavor and aroma that I am trying to coax from my beer that I'm having a hard time tracking down. I'm hoping that with your expertise, you can help point me in the right direction. The best way I can describe it is truly fresh malt flavor and aroma, not malt sweetness, but the flavor of actual malt that makes it into the finished beer. I was sitting at Founders a while back and ordered a PC Pills. This beer had the flavor and aroma of fresh baked bread and boiling wort. It was one of the best drinking experiences I've ever had due to the flavor and the overwhelming impression of freshness that it created. It melded perfectly with the fresh American hops. It just had this amazing perception of fresh baked bread straight from the oven. Like boiling a wort with tons of Munich malt, but this flavor made it all the way into the finished beer. I've also noticed this aroma and flavor in Julius from Treehouse and some beers from Firestone Walker. I have been chasing this dragon for quite some time and to no avail. I have tried different malts, Munich, Vienna, or aromatic, melanoidin, etc., different maltsters, single infusion mashes, decoction mashes, going grain to glass in very short times, even different boil times and vigors. I am a fairly experienced brewer at this point, brewing over 52.5 gallon batches per year, so I am comfortable with my gear and understanding process and ingredient variables. But for the life of me, I just can't seem to corner what is creating this in certain beers. Maybe mash pH? I rarely, if ever, stray from 5.3. I would like to reiterate, I am not talking about malt sweetness that is added by some malts, but a truly fresh malt aroma that makes it into the final beer, not just the boil kettle. I hope this makes some kind of sense and you can help shed some light on this. What am I doing wrong and what do I need to be doing to achieve this overwhelming freshness in my beer? Denny. Well, uh, I think I pretty much know what you're talking about here, Brad. Uh, it's uh, the kind of malt that I sense in a beer like Iron Dunkel, uh, one of my favorite beers. 
a really nice malt flavor to it, but without a lot of sweetness. Uh, and it's possible to do that, but you know, it's, it's difficult. Uh, at least it is for me. The first thing is start with quality ingredients. Uh, I have really been using a lot of different craft malts in the last year. And I have to admit that uh, I find that they have much more flavor than some of the malts made by some of the bigger producers. Um, so check your ingredients, taste your malt, make sure that you're using the best tasting malt you can get a hold of to start with. But then the question becomes, how do you keep that flavor in the beer? And I am suspecting that maybe what you're experiencing is oxidation. There's a group of people out there who are devoted to low oxygen brewing. Uh, and as much as I uh, admire their dedication, I'm not one of them because there is a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff to be done, uh, to utilize low oxygen brewing that I'm just not into, uh, into doing. But should you be, there's a website called lowoxygenbrewing.com. You can go there and get some tips from the people. Uh, some people say that you can take part of these measures and see a noticeable improvement. Uh, again, I haven't tried it, but it's things like uh, pre-boiling your strike water to deoxygenate it. Rather than pouring it into your mash tun, you underlet the grain. You put the grain in your mash tun first, run the water in through your mash tun output. Um, there are other ways to do it. People uh, do it with uh, even brew in a bag. But there, there are a lot of steps to it, uh, a lot of things to try. Uh, you can try using uh, Brutan B. Uh, that could be part of uh, maintaining your nice malt flavor. Uh, the low oxygen guys uh, swear by using metabisulfite to, uh, to maintain some of the flavor. But do some research in that direction. See if any of those procedures appeal to you. Give them a try and see if it gets it closer to the beer that you're looking for. Yeah, and part of the reason to talk about the low oxygen brewing uh, stuff is, I mean, that was their their primary driving claim. You know, like, hey, we want to get that German malt thing. And, you know, they, they felt like these processes would go get there. And uh, warning, when you go and read this stuff, the processes that they've laid out are super intimidating, you know, lots of precision involved, lots of, you know, um, a, a lot of, a, a lot of arcane incantations of things that you need to do. Well, and specialized equipment and procedures. For instance, they say that you can't use copper in your system anywhere. So you, if you're using an immersion chiller, you have to go get a stainless steel chiller. Right. Uh, well, and of there, course there's... people, people have, uh, Debated about this stuff back and forth because, of course, you can still go to Germany and see people using copper in the in the breweries. So, yeah, uh, and then there are a lot of German breweries that don't. Yep. So that's why it, it's kind of one of those things. Do some research on it and give it a try and see what you think. It, it may scare the hell out of you like it did me. And uh, I, I guess it's something else to point out is that it may not be suitable for all styles of beer. Our, our friend Jeff Rankert uh, has tried it. And swears by it for paler beers, German styles, Hellas, especially pills, that kind of thing. But also says if you're brewing an ESB, you just won't get the kind of ESB flavor that you're used to. Right. So 
there you go, man. I, no guarantees, but something to check out. Yeah, and astute listeners will have, uh, if they go back to the Water, Water Everywhere episode, which I swear we're going to keep referencing until probably the end of time, um, they'll hear Martin talk about the fact that he uses RO water, but he doses it with metabisulfite, which, you know, I do metabisulfite in my strike water because I'm getting rid of chlorine and chloramine. Don't have to do that with our water. But so I reached out and asked him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, no, I do that for low oxygen purposes. And so a lot of these guys have adopted different pieces of that Lodo procedure to you know best fit what they want to do. And so should you. Yep, exactly. All right. The next question here comes from Alan Caverly from Washington, and it is for Drew. Alan says, I very much enjoyed the last two podcasts on pastry stouts and hoppenings. I had a question about a question at the end of hoppenings regarding fruit and beer. I collected several pounds of boysenberries from my mom's garden. I double boiled them, put them through a mesh bag, and now have a decent amount of the juice slash concentrate. I have ingredients for a brown ale and plan to put about one-third of it in during primary for a little sour character and two-thirds during secondary in hopes of retaining some boysenberry sweetness slash flavor. I've yet to make the switch to kegging and oddly enjoy the bottling process. Oddly indeed, buddy. I worry about bottle bombs as this beer conditions over the next few months, maybe longer. Should I go about my normal priming sugar routine? I worry about the sugars in the concentrate in addition to the priming sugar being eaten up by lingering yeast. I had a friend mention pasteurizing the bottles after I've reached the desired pressure by testing a plastic bottle filled with the beer. I think I may be able to do this as well, but it'd be a first. What say you two? Thanks in advance. What say I? I say don't overthink this. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, I would follow your normal procedure. I would add the concentrate. I would allow it to ferment out, and then I would do your standard bottling. Um, reasons for that is go back to the episode and listen to where we were talking about people putting fresh fruit into their cans. You know those uh, gozas and IPAs that they were doing that were then ended up exploding, and those are cans. Those are relatively safe to explode. I would not do this as a homebrew. I wouldn't come anywhere near this, particularly not for a beer that you say that you're going to allow age for months. So uh, don't do that. Just ferment it out and let it go. You're going to get plenty of fruit character from the esters and all the other parts that you're adding. And yeah, you're going to lose out on the sweetness, but that's kind of a tough thing to, to get, uh, particularly if you're not going to keg and add potassium sorbate in order to stop the yeast from trying to re-ferment. So yeah, just ferment it out, let it go. I think you'll be surprised by how much fruit character you get. Now about pasteurization, I've never tried to pasteurize a beer. I've done it with cider. It is... A tricky process because you'll probably explode some bottles because carbonation and heat. Uh, so you'll need to make sure that if you do do this, that you're very safe. I do it inside my pressure canner when I've done it in the past. But the other thing is that, I mean, frankly, pasteurization does a lot to destroy beer flavor. And the big guys use flash tunnel uh, pasteurizers that basically superheat the beer super quick and then chill it right back down. So the amount of damage that it can do is relatively minimized. We don't have that option as homebrewers. So you're... I'm afraid that if you go and you do this, that you're going to add a lot of damaged flavors to your beer, and it's just not going to be worth it. Let me kind of start from the end here and work backwards. Number one, don't pasteurize it. Just don't even go there, man. It is a huge hassle. It could be dangerous, and it will affect the taste of your beer. Number two, you're going to be adding this juice into secondary. So it's 
going to ferment out so you won't have any sugars left from it to even worry about it's it's kind of the same as adding fruit to a beer it ferments out and you don't need to even think about those additional sugars so i would say go ahead with your plan bottle and prime normally and you'll be good to go there we go all right and our third question for today comes from mark colenbrander from denver who said just listen to your water water everywhere brewing water podcast see i tell you we're going to talk about this until the end of time (laughs) well done enjoyed it a lot thinking about sending some local municipal water from denver colorado into ward lab for testing i usually filter my water through a charcoal type water filter you think do you think my samples should be filtered or unfiltered if i send it in well i think that this one is pretty darn straightforward uh, Mark, send in whichever water you're going to be using. If you're going to be using the filtered water, that's what you want to have analyzed. If you want to use the unfiltered water, which I don't think you do, then that would be the water that you want to have analyzed. So always, whether it's like uh, from a filter, a water softener, whatever, and I wouldn't advise you to use water from a water softener, but whatever the brewing water you're going to use is, that's the water you want to get uh, analyzed. Yeah, and... To my to my practice, you know, since I don't use a carbon block filter, I just you know add potassium metabisulfite to the water to drive off the chloramine. Uh, the one thing I've never done that probably ought to do, but realistically, the metabisulfite's not going to affect it very much, is I've never actually done post treatment water and sent that into ward labs. Although that would be the most correct thing to do. But yeah, what you really want is you want the water that's going to hit the kettle. So go and test that. If you filter it, filter it and send that off to ward labs. Easy peasy. Yep. All right, last question. Last question is for Drew, and it comes from Alex Ensinger from Prague, Czech Republic. And Alex says, I have a question regarding a step I do every brew day. Forced ferment to determine target final gravity. I add about 300 milliliters of wort to the dregs of the yeast in the propagation rehydration flask and put it on the shaker table for two to three days and then measure the gravity to get a feel for what the final gravity of my beer might be. If I understand fermentation correctly, aerobic fermentation, which is what I believe happens on the shaker table, does not produce much alcohol. So does the final gravity reading that I'm taking give a true representation of the beer's final gravity? Am I wasting my time? Usually the beer's final gravity and what I measure after the forced ferment are close, so it seems to make sense. I'd be interested to hear your and other listeners' thoughts on this. I'm sure that this will initiate some good debate. Well, it might, but I'll tell you right now, uh, first things first, uh, your ferment on the shaker table is producing alcohol. So uh, remember, a large part of that is driven by sugar content. The other thing is a forced ferment test. We've talked about this before in the past, and I've done this from time to time. Just to spell it out for everybody, what a forced fermentation test is, is basically take some wort, pitch your yeast into it, uh, agitate it continuously. So on a shaker table, on a stir plate. And allow it to ferment out, and you're allowing it to run warm. The whole idea of an FFT is that you are measuring what your potential lowest final gravity is. If you did everything to optimize for fermentation velocity and fermentation thoroughness, so aka keep it warm, keep it agitated, keep the yeast up in suspension, what do you get? That shows you the maximum fermentability of your wort. And that's the whole point of an FFT. So in this particular case, you know, as Alex says, I mean, you're already seeing that your your warts are lining up, right? You know, your FFT is showing a result very similar to what you're seeing in your in your ferment. Now, most of the time, I usually think of an FFT will give you a slightly lower gravity than what you see from a regular ferment where you're controlling for flavor. But 
you got it. I mean, this is this is working. This is doing what you do. I like to do an FFT whenever I'm doing like something on the ragged edge, like if I'm testing a new yeast strain that I've, I need to pay a lot of attention to, or I'm doing like say one of my massive loggers that starts at 11:40, and I want to make sure I understand just how far I can drive that down so I don't have to sweat it if it stops at 10:30. Um, but yeah, that's, that's when I use an FFT. FFTs are useful. And I mean, do you have to do one every time? No. Uh, even most breweries don't do an FFT every time, but it's a good technique to master. It gives you a lot of information. In terms of the comment about, is there alcohol in there or not? Uh, the crab tree effect states that in the presence of a greater than 0.5% glucose solution, fermentation and therefore alcohol production will begin immediately. So, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be pretty much the same environment in that flask as it is uh, outside the flask. There we go. So, yes, your FFT is doing exactly what you don't want it to do. Next. Next, we have a quick tip that comes from our listener, Luke Sui, and I'll let you deal with that. Yeah, so Luke writes in, he says, I have a quick tip here that I hope is useful. And yes, it is. When sampling beer in a kegerator slash keezer with a cover tap, Always make sure the keg has positive pressure on it before attaching your liquid side disconnect. I recently, as in two hours ago, went to blow out particulate that had hopefully settled into the bottom of a keg of Kolsch I brewed for my brother-in-law's wedding coming up this weekend. I'm pretty sure I pressurized it when I added the room temperature keg to the keezer three weeks ago, but I never added CO2 pressure to the keg after that. I went out this evening to blow out the bottom, and when I pushed my liquid side ball lock with a piece of hose attached down onto the liquid out post... I heard a very pronounced gurgle inside my keg. My keg had negative pressure on it due to the cold temperatures, and I had just sucked a ton of unsanitized, oxygen-rich air right into my keg through the dip tube, agitating any sediment I had hoped to remove. I quickly added CO2 through the dip tube and purged the keg several times to try and scrub as much free O2 out of the beer as possible. The wedding is in four days. I hope it's still good by then. I hope the story helps someone else avoid a similar mistake. And Luke, I'm sure your beer will be fine. Yes, absolutely. Always make sure your keg has positive pressure on it. So the thing here that I always do is, unless I know for certain that that keg is completely carbonated and happy, I will attach my gas to it firsthand just to make sure. Because I've done the stupid thing where I've taken a Cobra line and gone, oh, I'm going to pour myself a glass of this beer and totally forgotten that, you know, either there's a small leak in the keg or something else has happened and, you know, pushed the Cobra line on there only to watch some of the beer that's still trapped in the Cobra line go running back into the keg and make me go. Rrr. So, yeah, make sure that your kegs are pressurized, particularly in this particular case, since you added CO2 to it and then put it from warm to cold because that CO2 went bye bye. Yeah, um, I haven't ever had this happen that I can recall, but it is a really good uh, thing to be aware of so that I don't have it happen to me sometime. Yeah, so there you go. Again, Luke's uh, tip to you is, hey, don't forget, you know, your kegs aren't always pressurized, so make sure that you uh, make sure you have positive pressure on your keg first. Uh, and it, by the way, guys, if you do have a quick tip, you know, after all, it's not just Danny and I here. If you do have a quick tip, uh, please email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and we'll make sure to use your quick tip and give you credit. So there you go. And it's time for something other than beer because occasionally we think about something else other than beer and we got a couple musical things for you. Mine is uh, something I just discovered thanks to a good friend. I'm a huge fan of Americana music. And there is a, a group out there called Three Girls and Their Buddy with Emmylou Harris, Patty Griffin, Sean Colvin, 
and one of the most brilliant singer songwriter guitar players that I've ever run across, a guy named Buddy Miller. So he's the buddy, right? Three girls and their buddy. <laughs> um, they have a number of things available on YouTube. And if you're into Americana music like I am, this is definitely something you should uh, check out. Wonderful, wonderful harmonies and vocals, killer songs, and some amazing musicianship. Absolutely. And then, of course, on my side, you know, if you if you love Americana, then you already know the name John Prine. If you don't know John Prine, stop listening to us right now. Seriously. Click the stop button on this podcast. Go pull up whatever favorite streaming service or whatever digital way that you have to get music. And go and grab the original John Prine album, just called John Prine, from, I don't know, like 1971, 1973? I think something like that. And listen to this guy who at the time was a 23-year-old postal clerk, you know, walking routes, delivering letters writing some of the most absolutely beautiful music out there, you know, like these gut-wrenching stories. He, Bob Dylan heard the, the album in a pre-release and had his mind blown by it. That should give you an idea. Uh, John Prine is an American treasure, so if you haven't heard any of his stuff, stop now, go listen to John Prine, John Prine, and also follow that up with the album Bruised Orange, because those are both great albums. And the reason why we're talking about John Prine is that he just released his first album of original material in something like 13 years. And it's an album called tree of forgiveness. And it's kind of his elder statesman album as he's looking off into, you know, his eventual death here. And, you know, a lot of really super touching songs. And he released a video for one called uh, summer's end. And boy, if you watch that video and you're not heartbroken by the time it's finished and maybe just a little teary eyed, I think you might be a robot. <laughs> yeah, man. He writes songs that are tremendously insightful and touching, and he writes some that are just so flat-out funny you can't help but laugh when you hear them. Oh, yeah, and, and some of it's just uh, absolutely amazing dirty humor, but clean dirty <laughs> humor, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. There's your, there's your quick tips. There's your something others. I think it's time to call this party done. Yep. I think it's time to wind this show up and move on. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing, or on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Uh, we're all over the place. Drew hangs out on the Reddit Homebrewing subforum and the Slack Homebrewing channel. I'm on a whole bunch of different beer discussion forums, uh, Beer Borg, Brews Brothers, uh, Homebrewing UK, and most importantly, the AHA Beer Discussion Forum. If you haven't been there, come on and drop by, whether you're an AHA member or not. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics and recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. And, of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or a text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs>